from Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, peanuts, lasers. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Robert Zubrin, who will talk about exploring Mars. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome to Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty cold here in Japan. <laughs> you don't know the half of it, son. <laughs> you know, we've had sub-zero Fahrenheit temperatures in Chicago, so it's a challenge. <laughs> I guess I won't complain. It's still in the mid-40s. <laughs> right. Well, certainly it doesn't compare with uh, the warm climes of Northern California. Back to paradise, huh? Right. The old golden age of the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. What are we in now? The platinum age of the program? I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, we're approaching our eighth year, right? That's right. Uh, lucky eight. We should do something special for the eight-year anniversary. <laughs> Lasted longer than a lot of marriages. <laughs> it's a scary thing. Uh, maybe one day we'll get a divorce, and then we'll have to split up the kids. <laughs> and, of course, all the episodes, too. I'll take the ones that are going to make us money. Oh, wait a minute. Uh. That's none of them. <laughs> So what's going on in science this week? In fact, it's going on in Japan. But something quite interesting has been reported here from the Saitama University, actually just a couple hours from where I am. And these physicists have generated the world's fastest random number generator. In fact, up to 1.7 gigabits per second. Oh, wow. Which is 10 times faster than uh, the previous record. Is, is it basically a change in the seed that they're using or the computation? They're using a, a physical phenomenon to create these random sequences. Mm-hmm. So it works by actually using a little laser, and they use some reflective material to bring part of it back into the main beam. And what happens is this induces chaos, so basically the light intensity fluctuates wildly. In fact, the signal is so complex and so broad over the frequency range that the randomness that's detected can be detected extremely fast. So in fact, they think they could get up to 10 gigabits per second once they optimize it. I mean, the idea is that it's unpredictable, it's, and it's also unreproducible, right? Well, that's very cool, but how practical uh, will such a random number generator be uh, in daily circumstances? Well, it's probably not needed now, but given how fast computers are getting, supercomputers especially, and how they could possibly crack code, something of this capacity could be useful when supercomputers are able to break code or random number keys that they use. Mm. Anyways, uh, cool stuff, and it's reported in a different favorite journal, actually. Actually, it's NP, Nature Photonics. You know, nature has so many journals now, it's become its own little cabal. What, nature chemistry, nature (laughs) biology? (laughs) And none of them will take my manuscripts. Well, I wonder if those lasers are very good at uh, destroying peanuts. I think the ones they're using are probably really tiny. Right. Oh, most peanuts are very tiny, too. So there are a lot of people who are allergic to peanuts. 
sometimes it causes people not to breathe or something, right? Right, and apparently peanut allergies are the most common cause of food-related deaths. Oh, okay. So trying to find a way for people allergic to peanuts to actually maybe want to eat them, um, or at least avoid death, is a major challenge. And now a uh, multi-institutional team led by botanist Peggy Ozias Akins of the University of Georgia in Tifton has used a technique known as RNA interference to uh, lower the level of two of the most intense peanut allergens that are produced by the peanut. Wow. I guess this is a good news for all those people who can't get skippies, huh? It's not quite the same just having a jelly sandwich. It's almost un-American. <laughs> And you're missing out on the protein. <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, but to get rid of these proteins, the allergic proteins, what they did was designed DNA sequences to produce RNA, which was complementary to that of the allergic proteins, which then stops their expression. Oh, okay. And it was quite fascinating because apparently these particular allergen proteins are protecting the peanut against fungal infections, but silencing them did not make them any more susceptible to it. So it hmm. seems promising in that regard. I see. You know, making this a feasible technology, so it may not be the most feasible for uh, growing hypoallergenic. Right. But it, it offers one additional avenue for potential growers to make. So I guess we might be expecting this in our supermarkets in a few years, huh? <laughs> or your Trader Joe's. <laughs> Or the equivalent in Japan. I don't know. I think the organic movement is just starting up, but we've got the basic American chains like Costco. And if interested in reading more about safe peanuts, <laughs> you can go to the Journal of Agricultural Food Chemistry. Sounds appetizing. <laughs> and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Robert Zubrin will join us to discuss living on Mars. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, with the constant stresses to our Earth-bound environment continuing to challenge our global resources, many might be wondering what happened to the space-age notion of colonies on Mars. Well, is living on Mars feasible? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Robert Zubrin. Dr. Zubrin is a renowned space engineer and founder of the Mars Society, and he has penned the new book, How to Live on Mars, A Trusted Guide to Surviving and Thriving, on the Red Planet, which explores the ins and outs of surviving on the Red Planet for uh, the total novice. Uh, Dr. Zubrin, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, well, it's our pleasure, and this is really a very fascinating book, and it has sort of a um, tongue-in-cheek style in terms of how it's written. I wonder if you can maybe explain the premise of the book. Well, the premise of the book is that it's a g advice to immigrants from an old hand on Mars. So it tells them everything they need to know from how to get to Mars on the cheap by riding the freight to how to get your first job, uh, including especially getting a job that doesn't kill you, since many of them will. 
how to make serious money on Mars by getting into business and all the various very lucrative things, including what certain people might call scams, but which he simply views as uh, opportunities, and how to find a mate on Mars, uh, who to avoid, how to invest your savings, how to become a politically powerful, how to avoid bureaucratic persecution from NASA or the Mars Authority, and so forth. So it, it tells you pretty much everything you need to know from when you first get off the dock and uh, have to avoid getting swindled by people selling overpriced equipment to you to uh, how to make it to the top of the social pyramid. <laughs> Good advice for any planet, I think. Yeah. So it is quite fascinating, but despite the tongue-in-cheek style, there's sort of a serious bent to it in the fact that Mars colonization is, in fact, feasible, you think? Oh, sure. Mars, for our generation and those that will follow during this century, Mars is the new world. Uh, it's the planet that's close enough to us to reach that has on it all the resources needed to support life and civilization. And it is within reach right now. From, from a technical point of view, we're much better prepared today to send humans to Mars than we were to send men to the moon in 1961 when Kennedy started the moon program. If Barack Obama was to show the same kind of vision and courage that Kennedy showed in committing us to the moon to, back in 61, if he was to show that right now, next spring get up and commit us to Mars, we could be there by the end of his second term. And this would be a tremendous stimulus to the economy as well as to education, development, to technology, intellectual capital, the works. And in fact, uh, served it that way in, in the 60s. You know, this country was in a recession in 61, 62. And the Apollo program, among other things, was one of the things that boosted us into record rates of economic growth. It also doubled the number of science graduates we had at every level in this country, a high school, college, PhD. Hmm. Still benefiting from that. Uh, so what would it really take to get to Mars? With today's technology, mm -hmm. um, there's a plan. It's called the Mars Direct Plan, which I've outlined uh, extensively in another one of my books called The Case for Mars. But that, that plan, you, you need two launches of a heavy lift launch vehicle of comparable power to the Saturn V moon rockets that we had in the 60s. The first shoots to Mars an Earth return vehicle with no one in it. That goes and lands on Mars. It brings a small supply of hydrogen with it to Mars, and it reacts that with the Martian atmosphere, which is mostly carbon dioxide, to produce a large supply of methane oxygen rocket propellant. So now you've got a fully fueled Earth return vehicle sitting waiting for you on Mars. And this is the key, not to have to bring your fuel to Mars, but make it there. Mm. Once that's done, at the next launch opportunity, you launch another rocket off the Cape, and that shoots out a HAB module to Mars with a crew of four, five, perhaps six astronauts in it. They go flying out to Mars. They land near the Earth return vehicle. They use their HAB module as their house while they're on Mars, as their little base. But then at the end of that time, they get in the Earth return vehicle, fly back to Earth. They leave their habitat behind on Mars. So each time you do this, you add another habitat to the base. And before you know it, you've created the beginning of the first human settlement on a new world. There's nothing in this that's beyond our technology. And by the way, in the book, How to Live on Mars, by this time they've built a dome over the collection of bases, uh, of habitat modules that first landed on Mars, and they have made a, a, a public exhibit out of the Beagle, the first HAB module to land on Mars. It's right in the center, and people can go visit it there. And, and there's a statue of one of the astronauts there and so forth, and they call it Founders Square. Uh, what, what do you think the political will really is like for uh, such a mission to Mars? Well, I don't know. I can't say. I know that the technical possibility is there. You know, the United States is in trouble right now. It was in an even tougher situation in 1961. In fact, we were in a Cold War with 10,000 nuclear warheads pointed at us. Russians uh, have developed superior launch capability, ability to bombard the United States, moving missiles to Cuba. This was a serious situation, and it's sort of counterintuitive that the way a president would deal with it would be by announcing a program to send humans to the moon, and yet he did. And, you know, i got to tell you, when we landed on the moon in 69, 
I was in Leningrad, and the Russians I knew came up to me, so you're an American, Malajets, that means like, that a boy, you know, do you know the astronauts, and, and so forth. It really had the effect that Kennedy and the rest thought it had of really showing that we were the future, and people want to be on the, with the future. They want to be on the team that's taking things forward, and and it had that effect, and, but of course it did more than that. It, it made a statement that anything is possible, and in particular that there's an infinite universe of worlds awaiting us. And unfortunately, we've passed on that historical opportunity for the past 30 years. We did not follow up Apollo. But if we do now, we can reach further, and to a world that's far more rich in resources and has much more potential of settlement than the moon, which is to say Mars. Yeah, in fact, some time ago, there was the vision outlined by Bush, but that sort of fell by the wayside. Well, the Bush program, frankly, was insincere. It, the, the, he got up in 2004 and he said, I'm visionary, I think the America should go back to the moon and on to Mars. But he put a schedule of returning to the moon 16 years in the future, and it only took eight years to reach there the first time. And that was starting from a country that had not yet developed push-button telephones. So basically what he was saying is, I'm for a visionary space program, and whoever follows me in office is welcome to start it. All I want is the credit. So th- that was baloney. But if, if Obama really wants to make a statement that we can do anything, okay, you know, that's his slogan, yes, we can. Kennedy's slogan was, we are the can-do nation. What better way of, of, of stating that everything is possible, that we have not entered the age of limits, than by initiating such a program. And as a way to mobilize industry and technology and jobs, and not just any old job, but jobs in which people hone their skills and develop new capabilities, new technologies, that's what this is. And out of this, you know, a Humans to Mars program today, we would get millions of scientists, engineers, doctors, medical researchers, inventors, technological entrepreneurs. Uh, these are the kinds of people that move the nation forward. It's a tremendous investment in human capital. I think it's entirely appropriate. Yeah, I think it's a much more useful way to spend government money than hiring a whole bunch of people to go mop the highways or something. I'm curious, so what's the will like at NASA? I think if NASA got the marching orders, there's plenty of people there that would jump at the chance to to go for this. Of course, there's a lot of deadwood in NASA, too, but it's exactly when you get marching orders like this that you shake out the deadwood, and you get the people who really want to do something, who join NASA in order to have a chance to storm heaven and have been, you know, chomping on the bit to actually be let loose to do something. And this is how you set this thing in motion, and it's like a peacetime army gets filled with a lot of deadwood, but after a little bit of action, you get rid of your McClellan, and you bring in your grants, and, and you all of a sudden you've got a real lean, mean organization that can do things. And that's what this would do. This would change our space agency back into the kind of organization it was in Apollo. Because it, it was the imperative and the deadline of Apollo that made NASA the terrific organization that it was in that time. And then when you take away that imperative and when there is no need for, for accomplishment, then you get the bureaucratic mentality and people with the bureaucratic mentality rise to the top. Yeah, in your book, you actually have a, a sort of a little section at the end of how to avoid the uh, bureaucratic, even on Mars. Yes, I do. The, well, first of all, when I was writing this book, a book that I was reading at that time was Roughing It by Mark Twain. And it's about his travels in the American West during the 1860s and the incredible free-for-all that was the frontier, both good things and bad things, but basically people being free to write their own rules and doing all kinds of stuff. And, and so the author of, of this book, that is the, the narrative voice, his name is Robert Zubrin, but he denies any connection to me. 
he is kind of a freewheeler. He tells people how, for instance, you can make money by prospecting. Now, of course, you can make money by prospecting, by actually finding real precious minerals. But that's hard to do. It's much easier to just come back and claim that you have found them, or, as he puts it, give an optimistic interpretation to the data. And you can generally get your interpretation certified by a member of the scientific staff of the Mars base, provided you cut them in for a sufficient piece of the action. And this then creates a claim that can be sold on the exchanges on Earth, and you're not harming anyone because the people who buy it from you will sell it for even more. And uh, he views this as wealth creation. He talks about the, uh, also real estate development. You know, Peter Minuit bought Manhattan for $24, and he would have done well to hold on to it because even in today's down market, it's worth more than that. Well, on Mars, you have a whole planet of land that's available almost for free and which will be worth much more someday in the future, especially if Mars can be terraformed. And the book discusses how, in fact, it is a realistic possibility in the long-term future for humans to take Mars and transform it into a much more hospitable world because Mars was once a warm and wet planet and conceivably could be made so again. The water is there. We just have to create an artificial greenhouse effect on Mars, which we know how to do, as you may have heard. And that will create oceans and lakes and rivers on Mars again, and that means beachfront property. And now, of course, it's not known exactly where the future beachfront property is going to be, but once again, you can always get a member of the scientific staff to certify your land as future beachfront property, provided you take their interests into consideration. And there you have it. So, and of course, all this happened in the settling of the American West mining claims, some which were real, some of which were not, uh, real estate of speculative value, will the railroad come through here or not, and enormous fortunes can be made and lost, but ultimately, as this process plays out, cities are built, universities are built, land is settled, a civilization is born. It's messy, but it works. And that is the sort of vision of the future that is laid out in How to Live on Mars. Yes, indeed, as you mentioned, the, the vision is very similar to that of the settling of the American West. Yes. Uh, it's a frontier. And a frontier, the bonds of custom are broken and unrestraint is triumphant. And it's an opportunity for people to have a chance to make their own world instead of just being the inhabitants of one that has already been made. And a lot of people will risk everything to have a chance for that kind of freedom. And that's what built America. And not only that, that's what formed the American character this unique, optimistic point of view. And I think that's what will prevail on Mars. It's a chance for a new start. It's not going to be utopia. I'm not proposing that at all. I think it's going to be quite messy, but it'll be interesting. It'll be fun. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm curious, are you, are you optimistic about getting to Mars? Yeah, I am. I, I, I think... I think there's a fundamental part of the human character that wants to go places we've never gone, see things we've never seen, build things that have never been built. I mean, this is the drive that brought us out of Africa and turned us into a global species. I think that drive will always be there. And so now that it has become technically possible to go to Mars, I think we're going to go to Mars. We'd be less than human if we didn't. Uh, I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the Mars Society. Well, the Mars Society, which, by the way, people can find out about from our website, which is marssociety.org, it's an international organization. It's in about 80 countries of people who are committed to furthering the goal of exploring and ultimately settling uh, the red planet. Uh, we do three things. One is just general public outreach to spread the vision. Second is political work to try to convince the political class to embrace this 
goal, and the third is private projects of our own, of which the most significant to date has been the building of a practice Mars station up in the high Arctic. It's a Mars base at 1,500 miles from the North Pole, and it's polar desert, and we send crews up there, and they have to act as if they were on Mars. They can't go outside without wearing spacesuits, and they try to conduct a sustained program of field exploration. And we learn a lot about what it's going to take to live and work on Mars there. Can people get involved in that? Yeah, sure. Anyone can join. As I say, there's a website at marssociety.org. We also, our next international conference is going to be at the University of Maryland in August, and anyone can come to that. And even if they've got something to say, submit a paper to present there. We typically have about 100 to 150 people present talks at Mars Society conferences. So there's lots of ways people can get involved. And, and it'd be very important for people to get involved because if we are going to send humans to Mars, someone has to make it happen. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm curious if maybe just some, some final words on the case for Mars. Well, you know, people say, why should we go to Mars because we have so much needs on Earth? And, but that's like saying, how can we put aside seed corn for next year when people are hungry today? You have to take care of the present, yes, but you also have to create the possibilities for the future. Mars is the future, and it's what we do for the future that's the most important thing of what we do in our life. So... In the book, How to Live on Mars, I I give a certain kind of vision of what that future might be in its uh, young stage, a young civilization just bursting at the seams with possibilities, not a perfect one, but one that that holds the potential for all kinds of, of future human development. And when they look back at our time, what will they consider important? Will they care about whether the governor of Illinois was corrupt or not, or who was in power in Iraq or Nicaragua or this or that? No, what they will care about is what we did to make them uh, possible. So we should make them possible. Indeed, indeed. Well, it is a a fascinating vision and I think a very true one. And the new book is How to Live on Mars, a trusty guidebook to surviving and thriving on the red planet. Dr. Zubrin, I do want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. All right, thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Robert Zubrin discussing living on Mars. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a saddening ball For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to fall Their 
ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Bound for Mars or Stuck on Earth. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they would be bound for Mars or just stuck on Earth, and a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Zubrin, you ready to play the game? Sure. Okay, here we go. Person number one, bound for Mars or stuck on Earth, Bill Gates. Hmm, Bill Gates. That's a close one. Um... In his youth, bound for Mars, today perhaps stuck on Earth. Uh, number two is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Stuck on Earth. There's no there there. <laughs> <laughs> number three is the former astronaut John Glenn. Uh, bound for Mars. Mm -hmm. The guy who wants to break new bonds. Yeah. And number four, we're curious about, is Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Interesting. Interesting. Interesting choice. Once again, could go either way. On the one hand, you say, here's a guy who's really comfortable on Earth. On the other hand, this is a guy who's made a great deal of money in real estate development. And there's no better place to do real estate development than Mars because, you, I mean, you're really getting in on the ground floor now. Mm -hmm. All right. And finally, number five, it's the uh, former president of the United States, George Bush. Let's keep him on Earth <laughs> for the sake of Mars, please. Or send him to the moon someplace else. But no, I... I'll pass on that application. Okay. <laughs> well, Dr. Azubrin, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about your new book, which, again, is How to Live on Mars, a trusted guidebook to surviving and thriving on the Red Planet. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. And now it's time for this week's Question of the Week. And right here we have the amazing Surfer Connery. It's Surfer Connery right here. And I've been catching the waves ever since I've become the one. So what's what? your question, dude? Well, Mr. Connery, uh, my question is, what does octopa mean? Is it like octopussy? So, octopa mean, you know, the little buzzing bees. But well, they're not going to become the one, because the octopamine controls their behavior, mostly their flight, and of course, riding the totally tubular waves, dude. And that's what the octopamine is. Alright, surfer dude, that was awesome. Sure shop, lad. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.